The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. We do praise you, Father, this day for being our refuge, our strength, our peace in the storm. Our comfort in the trial. Our hope when it seems that all hope is lost. You are that God. We praise you and we worship you this day. We thank you too. We thank you for your goodness. For the gift of grace. For your daily provision in our lives, for the gift of salvation, we thank you for the church, and particularly the gathered church today, where longtime friends who've worshipped together are here, brothers and sisters in Christ. Where there are new friends who've gathered here to worship today. We have guests who've come to worship you. Some come just traveling through here on vacation, Lord, but they, they came on the Lord's day to worship you. And for that, we are so grateful. And we know, too, that all the variety of people gathered in this place today, none of our presence comes as a surprise to you. Even where we sit is not a surprise to you. Thank you for your sovereign work in our lives. Thank you for your long suffering in our lives, your patience. Thank you for mercy. And for all of us who've brought, <clears throat> who've come here today, Lord, we've, we've, we've all brought our own baggage as well. And so, Father, we pray that you would take our family problems, our family issues that we're dealing with, uh, the financial problems that came in here today, the, the work issues that came in here, our relationship problems that came in here. Lord, we've, some have come in here even with personal hurts that came from other churches. Lord, we just pray for your healing work in our lives for your power to be evident in our lives so that when we go from this, this place, we might be your people, empowered by your Spirit to accomplish what you've called us to accomplish in our world tomorrow, the next day, the next day, and on and on and on. Help us to deal with all those matters in our lives in such a way that we can only focus on you today. For it's the Lord's day. And we worship you this day. Beyond all the trials and issues of our lives, Lord, we gather here today as sinners. And even as we recognize the sin in our lives, this very moment, we pray that you would forgive. Forgive our sins. Even as we think of them now. We praise you and thank you for your word. Precious word that lays the foundation for growing faiths. 
that our faith might be strengthened this day by the preaching of your word. Speak through our pastor. Open our hearts and minds to your truths for your glory and for our good. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I'd invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll look this morning at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, look uh, underneath the chairs in the row in front of you, and we've got some scattered out throughout the, uh, uh, the room this morning, and you're welcome to grab one of those. And if you don't have a Bible at home, take that one home with you. Keep it. For now, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. I'll read uh, beginning in verse 18 and all the way through 21. Peter writes, you know what, I'm going to go back to verse 17 so that we don't jump in the middle of a sentence. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were, tra- you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, Not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. There are two things that are true of every person who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. There are many things true, but there are two things particularly true and relevant. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, both of these things apply to you right now. If you are a believer here this morning, there was a time in which both of these things applied to you. And those two things are this. People who do not know God through the Lord Jesus Christ, are first of all enslaved to sin, that is, they're slaves to it, and secondly, they're under the wrath of God. Two very important truths for us to grasp this morning and to reflect on before we jump into chapter 1, verses 18 and following. Every lost person finds himself in that condition, enslaved to sin, under the wrath of God. A couple of passages, Titus 3.3, 3, For we ourselves, Paul writes, were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Paul reflects on what life was like before Christ. And he says, what we were like before then, we were slaves to our passions and our pleasures. In Romans chapter 6, verse 17, he says the same thing a different way. He says, thanks be to God. That you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient to the heart or from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. He writes to the believers in Rome and he says, listen, remember who you were. You used to be slaves to sin, but praise be to God, that's not who you are anymore, but it's who you were. And that's the condition of the, the Roman believers before they came to know Christ. It was the, the, the condition of those to whom Paul was writing in Titus chapter 3 before they came to know Christ. It was the condition of you, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, before you came to know Christ. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, it is the condition under which you find yourself right this very moment. 
a slave to sin. But further, furthermore, just not just a slave to sin, you're, you find yourself under the wrath of God. In John chapter 3, verses, verse 36, John writes, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Those who've been reconciled to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ find themselves friends of God, children of God. But those who have not find themselves people on whom the wrath of God remains. It's not just that the wrath of God is something coming for lost people. The wrath of God is a present reality that has a a final consummation that's coming in the future. That's what John was speaking of. When we think of the wrath of God, we think of a holy, righteous, violent anger. If anything is true of people who don't know Christ, it is that the wrath of God remains upon them. Now look, I understand that's not the most exciting way to enter a sermon. We don't like to uh, think and talk about the wrath of God. We much prefer to talk about the grace of God, right? We much prefer speaking about, thinking about, meditating on the mercy and the love of Christ. We much prefer talking about those topics. And all of those things are true. God is a merciful God. He is a loving God and He is a gracious, gracious God. But we must not allow those character traits of God to overshadow and cause to disappear another reality of His character. He is a God of wrath. The Bible has an awful lot to say about the wrath of God. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, he begins by saying this, For the wrath of God, Paul writes, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God is revealed... The verb tense there would better be rendered, for the wrath of God is constantly, presently being revealed against all ungodliness. The idea that the wrath of God is a present reality, a present reality that is ongoing, a present reality that's an ongoing, that is going to one day at the return of Christ have a final, ultimate, horrible consummation. This wrath of God that's being revealed, we've seen it progressively throughout human history, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The moment sin enters the picture of humanity, we see the wrath of God in small part displayed. For as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? There was a penalty. God's wrath burned against their sin. And instead of killing them in that moment, He spared their lives. But part of His judgment was revealed. They were thrown out of the garden. The earth was cursed. Death enters into human experience. And all sorts of other personal consequences. Remnants, pieces, parts of the wrath of God tasted by Adam and Eve and all those who come after them. You move forward in your Bible to Genesis chapter 6 and you see uh, that, that sin is so progressed that the wrath of God is kindled in such a way that in Genesis 6-7 the Lord says this, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. God's anger, His wrath burned in such a way at the sin of man that He flooded the earth. 
destroyed all but a few. You flip over in your Bible a few more pages and you get to Genesis chapter 19 and we run up on a a, a duo of towns called Sodom and Gomorrah. And we see that these were towns filled with people who lived in open, blatant rebellion against the Lord with no concern whatsoever. Saturated with rebellion against God. And the wrath of God burns against those cities. Genesis 19.24 tells us the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. For those who were present in the flood, for those who were the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, the wrath of God was a very real reality. And from that point on, as we move forward throughout the Old Testament, and we see the institution of the Old Testament sacrificial system by which weekly people were to come before the Lord at the temple and they were to offer animals and sacrifice. And what what happened to those animals? They were killed and their blood flowed out of the temple freely. A constant reminder that God is deadly serious about sin. And that his wrath is kindled against it. In Romans chapter 2, verse 5, Paul writes, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, he says, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's judgment will be revealed. Paul is writing to unbelievers here, and he says, Because you have a hard and impenitent heart, because you are hardened in your rebellion against the Lord, you're accomplishing something. The wrath of God that's already being revealed in small ways in your life is being stored up. It's like water in a flood that is rising constantly. Until when? The day of wrath. The end, when the Lord returns when his hand moves and the flood will overwhelm. A vivid picture of the wrath of God. Psalm 7, the psalmist writes in verses 12 through 13, if a man does not repent, get this, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons making his arrows fiery shafts. That's a horrifying picture of Almighty God. A God whose wrath is kindled, whose bow is bent and ready. You fast forward to the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17, and John is given a glimpse of the end times and the return of Christ. And in Revelation 6, We get this vision of heaven, and John says, When he, this angel, opened the sixth seal, I look, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in caves and among rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? 
It's a horrifying picture of what's going to happen at the end of time when that great day of wrath has come. God is loving and He is gracious and He is merciful. But make no mistake, He is a God who has a holy wrath that burns against sin and rebellion. Nobody has captured a picture of the wrath of God any better than Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher of history. In his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, he describes in vivid imagery the wrath of God and, and how that applies to an individual person. And if you'll indulge me this morning, well, you don't really have a choice, but if you'll willingly indulge me this morning, I want to use some of Edward's words. And I want you, as I read through this, to contemplate and consider what he's describing about the wrath of God. Edward says this, So that thus it is, that natural men are held in the hand of God over the pit of hell. They deserve the fiery pit and are already sentenced to it. And God is dreadfully provoked. His anger is as great towards them as to those who are actually suffering the executions of the fierceness of His wrath in hell. And they have done nothing in the least to appease or abate that anger. Neither is God in the least bit bound by any promise to hold them up one moment. The devil is waiting for them. Hell is gaping for them. The flames gather and flash about them and would fain lay hold on them and swallow them up. The fire pent up in their own hearts is struggling to break out and they have no interest in any mediator. There are no means within reach that they can be any security for them. In short, they have no refuge, nothing to take hold of. All that preserves them every moment is the mere arbitrary will and the uncovenanted, unobliged forbearance of an incense to God. That world of misery, he says, that lake of burning brimstone is extended abroad under you. There is a dreadful pit of the glowing flames of the wrath of God. There is hell's wide gaping mouth open, and you have nothing to stand upon nor anything to take hold of. There is nothing between you and hell but the air. Tis only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up. There are the black clouds of God's wrath, he says, now hanging directly over your heads, full of the dreadful storm and big with thunder. And were it not for the restraining hand of God, it would immediately burst forth upon you. The sovereign pleasure of God for the present stays his rough wind. Otherwise, it would come with fury and your destruction would come like a whirlwind. And you would be like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. Using Paul's imagery, he says, The wrath of God is like great waters that are dammed up for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it's let loosed. It is true. The judgment against your evil works has not been executed so far. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld. But your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing. And you are every day treasuring up more wrath. 
The waters are continually rising and waxing more and more mighty. And there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds waters back. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open and the fiery floods of the fierceness of the wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yea, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand and endure it. The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string. And justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it's nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God, without any promise or obligation at all, that keeps the arrow one moment from being drunk with your blood. And the God that holds you over that pit of hell much as one holds a spider or some other loathsome insect over a fire, he abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet tis nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. Tis to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night. That you were suffered to awaken again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose this morning except that God's hand has held you up. Edward paints a terrifying but true picture of the wrath of God and the very real situation that everyone who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ finds themselves in this very moment. The only hope that someone has that finds himself in that predicament, the only hope that someone has when they find themselves hanging over the pit of God's eternal wrath in hell like a spider, the only hope is that they would find a Redeemer somewhere. Someone who could purchase them out of that situation. Someone who could purchase them out of their enslavement. Someone who could pay the price to rescue them from the fierce wrath of God. One who could take their place under that wrath. God's Word tells us that there is one and only one such Redeemer. One who is both willing and able to rescue sinners who find themselves enslaved to sin. And under the wrath of God, his name is Jesus Christ. He is the most amazing person in human history. There is none who are like him. The world has been filled with all sorts of people who have done great things. If you turn on your television this week, you'll watch the Olympics, probably. If you can see some actual Olympics in between all the personal stories. And you'll see some people do great things, amazing things, 
Things that not just anybody can do. But all of their feats and all of their medals pale in comparison to the glory and the wonder and the splendor of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no one like Him. The world belongs to Him. In Colossians 1, he, Paul writes, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By Him all things were created, and all things that were created were created through Him and for Him. The world is His. He is the, the central figure of the Bible. The Bible is not primarily a, a history book. It's not primarily a science book. It's not primarily a book of morals that tell you how to behave in the world. It is primarily a book about a man. The Lord Jesus Christ, a God-man. It is a book about the work of Almighty God in redeeming sinners who are under His wrath and enslaved to their sin by giving His only begotten Son. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only hope for mankind. He's the only hope for human souls. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are enslaved to sin. You are under the wrath of God every bit as much as Edwards described it in that vivid imagery. And your only hope is the Lord Jesus Christ, that He would redeem you. And if you're here this morning and you're a believer... It would be important for you this morning to remember that you haven't always been that way. There was a time in which you were enslaved to sin. There was a time in which you were under the mighty wrath of God. And all that Edwards described was your destiny and the present reality of your life. It's important for us to understand the wrath of God. It's, under, it's, under, it's critically important for us to understand what it is to be like to be under the wrath of God because we will never fully understand nor appreciate our redemption nor our Redeemer until we fully contemplate the condition we were truly in. If you don't understand what a horrible position you were in before Christ, you won't appreciate Him as you ought to. If you're here this morning and you don't, don't understand what a horrible condition you're in outside of Christ, you'll never run to Him and embrace Him. The Lord Jesus is amazing. He is the Redeemer that Peter sets forth to us in First Peter chapter 1. And for Peter, Jesus Christ was everything. Because Peter understood what it was like to be a sinner enslaved to sin and under the wrath of God. He knew what it was like to meet the Lord Jesus Christ and to be redeemed by Him, to be rescued, to be saved, to be transformed, to be rescued out from the fire, to be moved from in front of the bow of God's wrath. He knew what that was like. He left his fishing career and followed Jesus for three years. He heard him speak. He saw him perform miracles. He looked into his eyes, and he was captivated and ravished by this man. And so it should be no surprise to us that as we continue to read through 1 Peter, we find that the Lord Jesus Christ is, and, and the, the information about him is just coming out of Peter's pen nonstop. He's writing here to believers who are suffering deeply in personal and painful ways. And he's focused on their redemption and their salvation. And he reminds them of their redemption and exactly who it was that redeemed them in order to buoy them up and strengthen them under the load that they found themselves in their day. 
So for sinners in the hands of a wrathful God, Christ is our only hope. He was the only hope of the recipients of Peter's letter. And Peter here reminds them and reminds us who he is and what their redemption has cost him. And the goal is to motivate them to live a certain way. Like we've been talking about for the last three weeks. To live in hope and to live in holiness and to live in fear. We live that way because we have a Redeemer who's rescued us. And Peter just recounts in these verses, verses 18 through 21, he recounts for us who our Redeemer is. And so for our time this morning that remains, we just look to Christ and we just remember who our Redeemer is as Peter lays him out for us this morning so clearly and so beautifully. He reminds us the first thing we should reflect on this morning about our Redeemer in verse 20, that he's preexistent and predetermined. Verse 20, speaking of Christ, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Foreknown before the foundation of the world. Another way of saying foreknown is to say he was preexistent and predetermined. Preexistent, just that word you don't use all the time, it just simply means Christ was not created. He has always existed as the second person of Trinity. When he was born into human flesh was not when he was created. He has been for all eternity in heaven with the Heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit and perfect unity and love in the Holy Trinity. He was there when the world was created. He was already in existence. He's always been. And predetermined simply means that his redeeming work, the work that he was sent to do here on earth, was not an afterthought in God's plan, but it was something that God had planned from all eternity. In fact, before the foundation of the world. All of that's captured in this word Peter uses here. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. We've looked at this word foreknown a good bit in recent months as we looked at in John's gospel and as we've looked through this first chapter of Peter. It's come up a couple of times, but just by way of review, the word doesn't simply mean passively to know something that's going to happen in the, in, in the future. The word literally means to plan or determine something that is inevitably going to come to pass. And so Peter here, speaking of Christ, the Redeemer, The one who has redeemed these believers to whom he writes, he reminds them that Christ was foreknown, that he was foreknown from the beginning, that he was, that he has always been in the plan for him to come and redeem sinners who find themselves under the awful wrath of God has been a plan that's been in place for a very long time. You see, it wasn't as though that God was shocked off of his throne when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, right? You realize this. It wasn't as though God created Adam and Eve and he placed them in the garden and he sat back to watch and see what was going to happen. As though it was a TV show playing out in front of him. It's not like he was up in heaven going, oh, are you kidding me? You've got to be kidding me. They did that. The one thing I told them not to do. And there they go. Angels, come here, look at this. Can you believe this? Now I've got to come up with some way to fix this mess. That's not how it played out. No, God understood the consequences before he ever created human beings. And he already had a plan in place. And that plan was to send his son to redeem a humanity that would fall. That plan has always been to place. Before there was a man, there was a plan. Before there was an earth, there was a plan. Before there was any person who made any choices, God had a plan to redeem a fallen humanity whom he would create. And that plan involved the sending of His Son, the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter preaches this. When he's preaching about Jesus, he says this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He wants them to understand those to whom he's reaching, his to whom he's preaching. You killed him, but he was delivered up, and it was determined that he was going to be delivered up when? Long ago. Long ago. Before you ever existed. This was all planned. He's going to go on to tell him, you're still responsible for it, though. Christ delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He's preexistent and he's predetermined. He's been around forever. He's God in human flesh. When you, when you read in the New Testament about the Lord Jesus Christ, when you, when you read about the man who walked the, 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 the dirt of the earth, who talked to people, who preached, who healed the sick, who made the lame to walk again, you're, you're, you're reading about and you're pondering the God of the universe who has stepped into human flesh. The one who is preexistent for all eternity, who steps into time in order to redeem those who are hanging over the pit of God's wrath. Our Redeemer, pre-existent, pre-incarnate, predetermined. But Peter tells us something else about him. He says that he was, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but in the second part of that verse he says, he was made manifest in these last times. So our Redeemer was, was pre-existent and predetermined, but He tells us something else about Him. He's incarnate. He was made manifest in these last times. What does it mean, made manifest? Made manifest means making something clear. It indicates a past historical event, and it, and it indicates the incarnation of Christ, the Christmas story. The plan of God that's been forever. The plan of God to redeem those who find themselves enslaved to sin and under the wrath of God involves sending the, the pre-existent Son of God to become incarnate, to be born into human flesh. To become a man and to walk among men. Luke chapter 1 captures that event in human history. And records for us, Luke does, the miraculous birth of this Redeemer. In Luke chapter 1, verse 34 and following, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be? Since I'm a what? You could say it out loud. It's okay. I'm a virgin. I'm a virgin. And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God. You understand, our Redeemer experienced the glory and splendor of heaven from all eternity, but He didn't stay there. Because as a Redeemer, He couldn't stay there and redeem us. He had to be born. He had to be born in a birth that was unlike any other birth that any human being has ever experienced in the history of the world. He was born to a virgin. By the Holy Spirit of God. And Mary gives birth to the Son of God. And the Redeemer, part of the plan from all eternity, is born as a little baby. A sweet family from our church experienced that last night. Dorothy and Frank. 
Franklin gave birth to little Olivia last night or this morning at some point between when I went to bed and when I woke up this morning. Precious little baby born. But that baby came from a mother and a father, both of whom are human beings. The Lord Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. A miraculous birth. A birth like no other because he's a redeemer like no other. Paul gives us the spiritual reality of that in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and following. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So that we might receive adoption as sons. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, to redeem us. To redeem people who were held over the pit of God's eternal wrath on a spider web. Christ came and was born. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul reflects on this again. He says, who, speaking of Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Our Redeemer left the glory and splendor of the Father's presence. He left the perfect love and intimacy with the Father and the eternal Trinity. He left the worship of almighty angels. He laid aside the, the, the exercise, the free exercise of much of the attributes of His deity, and He submits Himself to human birth, to human flesh, to, to the experience of humanity. And Joseph and Mary give birth to God the Son. He was born. But in his incarnation, he lived a perfect life as well. He was born and he lived for 33 years or thereabouts. And every single minute of every single day that he lived, he lived utter perfection. Not one sin. It's important to our redemption. And Peter reflects on that in verses 18 through 19 in chapter 1, where he says this, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with what? The precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. How does Peter point out that he was a lamb without blemish or spot? Because he wants us to understand that our Redeemer, who was born in human flesh, was a perfect Redeemer. A perfect Lamb for this perfect sacrifice. A Lamb who had never, ever sinned. He reflects on this again in First Peter chapter 2 when he says this in verse 22. Speaking of Christ, he committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. No sin, no deceit, no reviling, no sinful anger, no jealousy, no lust, no sin. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 reflects on this same reality and the spiritual theological significance of this when he says we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but we have one that in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet what? Without sin, without sin. Our Redeemer was born 
He lived a perfect life. No sin. Tempted in every way. He can sympathize with every experience that we ever have because he was tempted in every way. The difference being, he never sinned. And that matters when it comes to our redemption because Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that for our sake, the Father made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, he had to be born and he had to live a perfect life, a sinless life, so that he could be one who knew no sin in order to take on our sin. And that had to happen to rescue us from the flames of God's wrath. It's the doctrine of imputation. We've talked about it a bit. Charging to someone else's account. He knew no sin. He never sinned one time so that the fullness of your sin and my sin could be charged to his account and his perfect righteousness could be charged to ours. It was necessary in order to redeem us. It was necessary in order to get us out from under the awful wrath of Almighty God. He had no sin of his own to pay for. So he paid for ours. You see, if Jesus goes to the cross as a lamb with spots and blemishes of his own, he dies for his own sin and no one else's. But if he goes to the cross as a lamb without spot or blemish, he becomes the perfect sacrifice who can take our sin to his account and charge to our account his perfect righteousness so that he endures the fullness of the wrath of God in our stead. That we might inherit what he deserved, full and eternal life. Not only was he born, not only did he live a perfect life, but Peter reminds us that he was crucified and he was buried. He reminds us that by saying that these people have been redeemed in First Peter verse 19, chapter 1. They have been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. Their redemption had come at a cost, and he wants them to know that this Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, this most amazing one who has ever walked the planet, the only one who could rescue them from the flames of God's eternal wrath, that their redemption that he accomplished came at a cost. And that cost was his death, his precious blood. The Bible has an awful lot to say about the blood of Christ. It's mentioned three times as often as the cross is mentioned. It's mentioned five times as often as the death of Christ, that phrase, the blood of Christ. In Acts chapter 20, the church was purchased by the blood of Christ. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says we've been justified by his blood. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, we have made peace with God and we've been reconciled, guess how, by his blood. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12, we've been sanctified by his blood. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, the blood of Jesus, John writes, cleanses us from sin. When Peter speaks of the precious blood of Christ by which they've been redeemed, he's talking about the entirety of Jesus' redemptive death. It's important for us to understand when he talks about the blood of Christ, he's not talking as though there's something magical about the red fluid. I guess it's blue when it's in your veins, isn't it? One of you medical folks 
fix me on this later. It's red when I see it, but I think when I don't see it, it's blue. But it's blood. The liquid that flows in veins and arteries. It's not what he's talking about here. It's not as though there was something magical in the substance itself. It's not as though there was something mystical about the fluid that ran through Jesus' veins. As though if we do something magical with the actual fluid, it somehow magically saves us. If that were the case, every Roman soldier around the cross would be magically saved because they were truly splattered with his blood. And when the Bible and the biblical writers speak of the blood of Christ, they're speaking of the entirety of his sacrificial death. And they use blood as the imagery because blood is a very vivid picture of life flowing out. You lose enough blood, and what happens? You die. And it's a very vivid way of describing the death of Jesus. You know the story. Jesus was arrested. He was brutally beaten. The, the biblical writers tell us he was beaten beyond recognition. He was beaten. He was tortured. A crown of thorns was racked upon his head. A cat of nine tails laid across his holy back. He was forced to carry his own cross up a hill. And was nailed to it. And by the time that cross went up and stood upright, you can bet it was a bloody, bloody scene. And all of that vivid imagery, all of that blood flowing down that ravaged body in that brutal cross was a very visible reminder of what was actually taking place on that cross. Our Redeemer was dying. He was in those moments enduring that awful wrath of God for our sin. That's what was happening. That's why He was dying. He was crucified. And he died for our sins. That was the cost to redeem us. You see, we think in terms of forgiveness this way, often, mistakenly. We think, you know what? I sin. I just ask God to forgive me. And he does. No big deal. Part of that's true. I ask God to forgive me, and He does. But it's a huge deal. You see, because for every single one of my sins, the Redeemer suffered and died on my behalf. The Redeemer endured the wrath of God that Edwards described. That awful, horrible wrath of God. That wrath of God, that fury, that, that holy, righteous, violent anger that we read about in Revelation in chapter 6 that's going to come at the end of the time that's going to be so awful that the people are going to run for caves and plead for the mountains to hide them from it was being poured out on the Son of God on the cross for my sin. Oh, our sin's a big deal. It's a big deal. Because our Redeemer endured the wrath of God for it. Every single one of them. The perfect spotless Lamb of God. Born, lived a perfect life, crucified and buried, shedding His blood to redeem us. But Peter goes on to tell us more about our glorious Redeemer. In verse 21, the second part, 
He says this, speaking of Christ, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead. You see, our Redeemer didn't just die on a cross for our sins. He wasn't just buried. He didn't just endure the wrath of God, the full, entire cup of the wrath of God for our sins. But the Bible tells us that he rose from the dead. We've gone from Christmas to Easter in one sermon here. You understand that's the glorious moment of the gospel. That after being crucified, after enduring the full wrath of God for our sin, and after being buried and in a grave for three days, the Lord Jesus Christ arose from that grave alive and perfectly well, defeating sin, defeating death, and once and for all visibly making manifest His redemption of mankind. His redeeming work was done. Acts chapter 2, verse 23 and following, Peter says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This Jesus, God raised up. And of that, Peter says, we are all witnesses. And Peter says this time and time again in his preaching, This Jesus, you crucified, God raised him up, and I saw it. The resurrection of our Redeemer is so central to our salvation that there is no redemption apart from the resurrection. If Jesus dies on the cross and he doesn't rise from the dead, our redemption is incomplete. And we have no reason to believe that the Heavenly Father accepted the sacrifice of His Son on our behalf. And death is still an enemy to be feared. And we don't have hope beyond the grave. But Christ is risen. You see, He's a Redeemer who was born. He's a Redeemer who lived a perfect 33 years of life, was crucified, buried, enduring the full wrath of God on our sin. But a, but a, a Redeemer who rose from the grave, defeating death, securing eternal victory, and making clear to all who would ever see or contemplate this reality that the Father has accepted the sacrifice of the Son on our behalf. And making clear that there's a doorway out the backside of the grave into the eternal presence of Almighty God for all who will trust the Son. We serve a risen Savior. The second part of verse 21, he tells us one more thing. Through Him are believers in God who raised Him from the dead and get this, and gave Him glory. Gave Him glory. Our Redeemer was pre-existent and predetermined. His plan was there from all eternity. He was born into human flesh. He lived. He died. He was buried. He rose again, and He's glorified. Ascended back to the Father. That's what Peter's talking about here. The one who rose from the grave ascended and returned to the Father. The one who had descended from heaven went back to where He came from. The one who left the glory and splendor of the angels and the worship of all the angelic beings went back to the glory and splendor of the worship of all the angelic beings. The one who left the perfect love and unity of, 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 of the perfect trinity went back to that experience. And he finds himself there in this very moment. Mark chapter 16, Mark tells us he saw it. He says, so then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven. And he sat down at the right hand of God. 
our Redeemer who came to redeem us left and went back to where He came from. After finishing His redeeming work, He goes back to the Father. He leaves the human flesh that He had took on. He leaves the sin-riddled world which had rejected and crucified Him. He leaves His humble appearance as a man and He returns to His Father. He returns to His glory. He returns to His rightful, exalted place and He awaits right there at this very moment for the moment when He'll return. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, Therefore God's highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue would confess. Every tongue in heaven, on earth and under earth confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, one day everyone is going to look upon the Lord Jesus Christ and they're going to see Him for who He is, the Redeemer of humanity. And one day, every single human being who has ever walked the planet is going to bow before Him and confess Him as Lord. Some will do so just before they enter eternal torment, facing the eternal wrath of God for their sin because they've never entrusted their lives to Him when they had the chance. Why did he do all this? Why did our great Redeemer do this? Why did he leave heaven? Why was he born? Why did he live a perfect life? Why was he crucified, buried, and risen? For what purpose? Peter tells us in verse 21. Who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Back in verse 21, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, for your sake. Why did the Redeemer do all of this? Why did Christ do this? He was foreknown. He was incarnate. He's risen, glorified for a purpose. And that purpose was so that he might redeem your soul. It's done for you. If you can hear my voice this morning, it was for you. For you personally. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've never come to a place in your life where you've recognized that you were in that very predicament that Edwards described in that sermon that we read a moment ago. You've never realized that you are a sinner who is at this very moment sitting under the wrath of God. You've never come to that place where you've recognized that one day you were going to face your Creator and you were going to kneel before Him and confess that He is who He said He is and that His Son, the Lord Jesus, is who He said He was and you'll confess it right before you go to an eternal hell to pay for your eternal sin. If you've never realized that this morning, if you've never come to a place where you've confessed your sin and pleaded for the Lord Jesus Christ, to forgive you and to save your soul and to do for you what you could never do for yourself, to rescue you out from your slavery to sin, to rescue you out from the holy wrath of a holy God. If you've never come to the place in your life where you've done that, you need to do it right this second, right this very moment, because Christ came and He lived and He died for you, that He might rescue you, that He might save you, that you might not have to endure that wrath yourself. If you will simply repent of your sin, and all that means is to turn away from it, 
and turn toward Him. Admit that He is who He said He is, the Redeemer who came from heaven to rescue you. And commit your life from this day forward to Him as your only hope. If you'll do that this morning, He'll save your soul. He will pluck you out of that predicament of being under the wrath of God. And He will rescue you. He will redeem you. He will save you. If you're lost this morning, there's only one way to be saved, and it's through the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll find salvation in no other. There is no other Redeemer who can save you. There is no other God who can save you. There is no other person who can save you. There are no amount of good works that can save you. Only Christ. Only the Lord Jesus Christ. Your only hope is that your faith and hope are in Him. Edwards concluded that sermon by saying this to all those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And now you have the opportunity, the extraordinary opportunity, a day wherein Christ has flung the door of mercy wide open and stands in the door calling and crying out with a loud voice to poor sinners, a day wherein many are flocking to Him and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many are daily coming from the east, the west, the north, and the south. Many that were very lately in the same miserable condition that you're in are in now a happy estate with their hearts filled with love to Him that has loved them and washed them from their sins in His own blood and rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. How awful it is to be left behind in such a day. To see so many others feasting while you're pining and perishing. To see so many rejoicing and singing for joy of heart while you have cause to mourn for the sorrow of heart and howl for vexation of spirit. How can you rest one moment in such a condition? Are not your souls as precious as the souls of the people who have also suffered? O sinner, consider the fearful danger you're in. Tis a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath, that you were held over in the hand of that God. That God whose wrath is provoked and is incensed as much against you as many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread, with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it, and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold to save yourself. Nothing to keep off the flames of the wrath. Nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you for one moment. Therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ awake and fly to Him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, there are some in this room, there is no doubt about it, who find themselves, Almighty God, remaining under your wrath. And their only hope in these moments is to fly to Jesus. There are some who hang at this very moment by that slender thread over the very pit of hell. There are some who if they were to die in this next moment, give their last breath, they would spend an eternity paying for their own sin, experiencing your eternal wrath, your awful wrath. And for whatever reason, Lord, they've never 
They've never turned to your son Jesus to find eternal life. They've never run to your son, the only redeemer, the one you sent on your behalf to rescue them. He's their only hope this morning or any day. I pray that you would impress upon them the reality of who you are, the reality of your awful wrath, and the reality that it remains upon them and that their only hope is Jesus, your Son, whom you sent to be born, to live, and to die, shedding his precious blood for them that they might be rescued. Oh God, may they run to you this morning by running to your Son, repenting of their sin, and entrusting their lives to Him. And for those who are in this place who already know You, Heavenly Father, having already come to You by Your Son, may we remember, may we remember what a great, great price You paid to redeem us. May we remember what it was like to be under the awful, holy, violent wrath of You. May we remember what a high, high price was paid. The very blood of your Son. That we might be redeemed. Oh Lord, for the lost, may they fly to Jesus. For the saved in this place this morning, may we live lives filled with hope, filled with holiness, and filled with a righteous fear of you. Because of what you've done for us in redeeming us by your Son. We pray these things for the glory of Jesus, our Redeemer. Amen.